Hello, and welcome to the Center for Medical Education's podcast series. This week's episode, Pediatric Altered Mental Status, comes from our new EMCERT Module Mastery course. We developed this eight-module series to assist with and guarantee passing the new MyEMCERT exam. Please visit ccme.org forward slash EMCERT module to learn more. Thank you and enjoy. Let's talk about kids. Yeah. I mean, so, kids altered mental status, which has a couple of unique things. It does. So we're going to kind of zero in on the little guys and let's see what's on that differential. There's going to be a lot of things that we see on the adult, but there's some, like you said, there's some interesting things that are particularly unique to pediatrics. Mm-hmm. Obviously, kids have epilepsy. You may see kids that are seizing or maybe postictal. They can certainly get CNS infections and meningitis needs to be high on our list. We've talked about that one. But there's also some GI things on the list, yeah. like intussusception and mid-gut malrotation that we have to consider. Non-accidental trauma is obviously, unfortunately, on the list yeah. as well that we have to consider. Brewy, which is the uh, which is the new term for, for the Aldi. old the old Alti, exactly. Um, inborn errors of metabolism, rare but yeah. happen. Then we think about our endocrine things. These are little guys who may not have presented with their endocrine problem before, so there may be new onset things like DKA, electrolytes certainly on the list. Yeah. Kids who have VP shunts who have problems with them may be the reason for them to be altered. And then there's tox. The one pill that can kill. There's a yeah, bunch of toxic things that can happen for sure. So we've talked about meningitis briefly. Let's just focus in on the kids and just mention a few other things. What kind of history might someone give? Well, you see this, but in, with kids, you want to think about that birth and perinatal history mm-hmm. in the little guys. That can be important as well. Immunization, Immunization. is huge, right? This is a huge oh. consideration. So we have to think about what shots have they gotten? Where do we live? Is this a, is this a, is this a, a place with herd immunity or not, yeah. not with herd immunity? These right. are actual things these days. Absolutely. So you know, and it's th- not predictable who is in, in vaccinated and who isn't. That's right. It's not. And then we have to think about this child's medical history. There are kids who have chronic medical problems that put them at risk for all kinds of other things. And then where does this kid live? Where do they go? Are they in childcare? Is there an outbreak there? What kind of mm-hmm. community are we in? Were they just at Disneyland where they had the measles? Exactly. You know, I mean, like you have to think about these historical features. It's really worth knowing. And, and just in real life, forget ABEM for a minute. Yeah. You know, the vaccines in kids have fallen off tremendously um, in the last year for yes. obvious reasons. So just be aware that some of these infections that you may have never seen. Yeah. So if you're a young practitioner, you may never have seen this. This could come right down your pathway because kids may not be up to date on their vaccines. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Hopefully yeah. you know, we're going to see Hopefully some like post-COVID up. vaccine blitz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so in terms of meningitis causes and treatments, um, we talked about this earlier in the module, but don't forget that your neonates are at risk for special things like E. coli, group E. strep, listeria, um, and your gram negatives, and those have specific antibiotics that you want to consider. And cefotaxime is what you want to give here. We'll talk in a moment about why. Then we have infants, we have children, then we're up to adults, but all these age groups have different pathogens, and we need to remember what those are, so we give that extra coverage when we need to give it. Ampicillin is in the really little and the really old. Yeah. <laughs> that listeria. Or the alcoholic. Yeah, the alcoholic. And exactly I hate right. the fact that really old is over 50. Yeah. <laughs> Who said that's old? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a problem. I with that. That's I a problem. Agree. I don't agree. 
Now, for the age under two months, remember that meningitis, we think about neck stiffness and headache, and they're not going to be able to tell you those things. So we look more for behavioral problems. They're more apathetic or lethargic. They're not feeding very well. They're crying all the time. We want to think about meningitis here. And these particular organisms we need to think about. Now, listeria is uncommon, but ampicillin is what we want to choose. And if we think that strep pneumo is the issue for whatever reason, then vanco because of the resistance that you can get. So vanco would be added. Now, why don't we give ceftriaxone to these really little guys? Well, because it causes this bile sludging issue. It competes with bilirubin, and so it can cause a hyperbilirubinemia, and they can get encephalopathy from that. So we choose cefataxime in these little guys who are just learning how to deal with their bile. Yeah, and that's and that's a subtlety that's probably worth knowing yeah. um, because it is something that's that's relatively important. And the thing that's a little bit hard is that you'll see on different slides and different recommendations, where's the cutoff? Uh, is it one month, two months, or three months mm-hmm. where you sort of let, let E. coli and group B go, the listeria go? And, and it is variable. So in real life, it kind of just depends on your local practice, what you do. A lot of people definitely under one month for sure. Yeah. Um, most people under two and some people up to three. And that's, there's no harm actually, yeah. honestly, in doing that and covering. Yeah. There's no harm. And on an exam, I don't think they'll make it that subtle. I think they'll, they'll give you a six month old or they'll give you a one-month-old. They're gonna, not going to make it that. So. Yeah. Um, continuing on with the neonates, um, remember that they can have hyponatremia, and that is can manifest with seizures as well. So keep in, in mind that, that that SIADH can happen when you have brain pathology. Um, and they can get brain edema for sure. Um, and this is a bad thing, obviously, um, and can predict you know how bad things are going to get. So you want to maintain, like with all intracerebral problems, you want to maintain good blood pressure. You want to maintain good output, uh, urine output. That's a, an output that you want to make sure you're, you're perfusing well. And then remember, we talked about how decks and these little guys, it can be kind of plus or minus. And so do what your PICU attending or your NICU attending, whatever they want you to do, just kind of consult with them because this is a little bit controversial, but they may have strong feelings about it. Yeah. Yeah. As we get over into this two to three, somewhere in there period, we start transitioning more into the organisms that we see in older people, older children, um, strep pneumo, Neisseria, Haemophilus uh, influenza is back on the list. And remember that this is yeah. where vaccines start to play a role. And now we can give them ceftriaxone. That's an okay drug to give at this point. And then encephalitis is also on the, on, the, uh, on the menu as well. So if you see seizures, you see altered, they may have fever. Again, this could be subtle in these little guys that they may just not be feeding well and they may not be sleeping well. And Maybe you have a viral meningitis pattern when you do your tap. That can still be on the list. And remember that things like measles and mumps and rubella yeah. and zoster, which are all viruses, if they're not vaccinated or we're not at the, the place where they have those vaccines yet, we have to consider those. And those cause encephalitis. So um, we want to consider those things as well. Now, intussusception, which is a GI problem, an intestinal problem, interestingly, can cause altered mental status. Yeah, and so this is on the list. Remember, this happens in kids from, you know, three months all the way up to six. It's the kind of thing that comes and goes. That's the classic story. It can be really bad abdominal pain, and then they look better. The current jelly stool we talk about, that's, but that doesn't happen all the time. No, in fact, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, no. I don't know. We keep saying it, but it's, it's like, like the it, kind of thing you never see it. No, you really don't. No. Um, and they're and not going to give you that aid in general because that that's either, just yeah. too much of a, no, they're not going to do that. So the kid who's altered and has abdominal pain or the mom says any had abdominal pain yesterday the listlessness the altered plus this intermittent abdominal pain think about intussusception right 
And diagnostically, you can use an ultrasound to find this. And treatment-wise, you can use an enema, contrast or air enema. um, But you may need surgery if it's already perforated or the enema didn't work. You may be going down that pathway. But the first pathway is a non-surgical pathway. Yeah, this listlessness is something that we don't think about in these kinds of disorders. We have a pediatric emergency doc who's phenomenally good. Also, has the blackest cloud of anybody I've ever known in my life. So every Mm -hmm. every horrible pediatric thing comes in when she's on. But she'll she'll walk out of a room of a listless kid and say, this is an assessment. Get the ultrasound. It's like, how do you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So keep that in mind. Um, what does the ultrasound look like? You see the little tube that you call the tube within the tube, but yeah, you, the on that cross section, you see the intestine within the intestine, the telescoping that's happening there. And there's often a lead point and that could be a polyp. It could be meckles. It could be a little lymphoid hyperplasia that's causing it. Um, and maybe you're going to even feel a little, you know, a little sausage-like mass in there. Maybe if you're, if you're lucky, you could on feel the, it Usually on the right side. Yeah, usually mm-hmm. on the right side. Now, this is terrible. Mid-gut malrotation is Ugh. very bad. Um, and when you have a little one and has vomiting, particularly when it's bilious and and if if they're in their first month of life this is this is something like mid-gut malrotation until proven otherwise because this is such a serious diagnosis that you have to convince yourself that it's not that before you give that one up Um, but they can also have altered mental status with it so maybe there's the listlessness the poor feeding they're a little dehydrated that could all go along with it so you know think about this diagnosis if you think about it you want to get an upper GI series that's your definitive test that highlights what's going on Um, and this is absolutely surgical this is a call. If you suspect yeah. it, call a surgeon. Bilious vomiting, call a surgeon. Yeah, you know, even, this even is this, even sometimes before you have that test. Even, yeah, exactly. Getting this is, this GI, is, it's not going to be easy. No, it, it takes a while to get that going. I mean, think then, about it. This yeah. is like an infant that you're trying to give an upper. Ex- I mean, it's not going to uh, happen yeah, right and away. Then the, so. And then you get pushback from radiology, and it's like, what? Yeah. We haven't done an upper GI. Like, yeah. oh, so give your on. surgeon a heads up that you're thinking about. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, we do know for absolutely for sure in pediatric altered mental status, non-accidental trauma has to be in your differential. Um, and we think about this as what was called shaken baby syndrome, but abusive head trauma. The babysitter or frequently the, the boyfriend of the mom while mom's at work is sort of the classic presentation. Just, the child will not stop crying. Yeah. And they just grab the child to get the kid to quit crying. And they get basically abusive head trauma. Um, retinal hemorrhages are seen in most of them. They're not specific to this. So don't go, if the kid is just playing and looks fine and you look in there for whatever reason and you see what you think are retinal hemorrhages, be a little bit careful accusing anybody of anything. Um, but if in the right clinical setting and your hebes you're not, it's like, ooh, something's not right with the situation. Um, if they're there, this is a protect the kid kind of deal. They may look fine on the outside. There's Because again, this is just the brain battering around in there. It isn't anything they've abused and hit them on the outside. But they may also have other injuries. So if you have a child who's a little bit lethargic, not eating well, crying inconsolably, or just lethargic, and you are worried about this, you see retinal hemorrhages, you're worried about this, do something like a skeletal survey because you're going to see other injuries that might be there at various ages. Do a really good exam, like really strip them down and make sure you've looked at all the bits and parts for anything that might be an abusive kind of injury. Um, but this is the one that we worry a lot about as far as kids' brains are concerned. Um, you're going to get a scan and you may see nothing. Um, you may see things like true epi- you know, epidural, su- subdural hematomas that we worry about. The, the key here is as soon as it really is on your radar, certainly take care of the child. Right. Um, if they're out, you know, do whatever you think is medically appropriate for the child. But this is where authorities get involved. You call Department of Child and Family Services. You call social services. This kid does not go back to that family no matter what it takes to get them. Often what you'll just do is admit them. Um, even if they're yeah. not that sick, you're going to admit them to keep them And your pediatricians safe. won't argue with you. Oh, this no, is, no, This no, is no. way on their radar. 
radars. Oh, so. absolutely not. Yeah. So, so don't this worry. Is, don't worry. Yeah, this yeah. one, d please, low threshold, go ahead. If you're wrong, good for you, and that's great. And if you're not, then you've saved a kid. So not, non accidental trauma is there. Now, we mentioned this idea that Alti, which was a terrible name. <laughs> it was. Acute life-threatening <laughs> event. I'm, your child is fine. They just had an acute life-threatening event. Yeah. Like, Can you what? imagine taking that discharge paperwork home? I know. Like, what? Not even. Yeah. So it's been renamed Brief Resolved Unexplained Event, which is equally awkward, but at least there's nothing about death in there. <laughs> um, and the, the key here is we knew with Alti kids, we were doing all these tests, like tons and tons of tests, and nothing was happening. Most of them were fine. It was no big deal. And, and, and we were just doing tons of tests in kids. What they've done with this brew is now they have an algorithmic approach that at least is logical and it gives you flat on permission to don't do anything. In yeah. fact, it even has, I'll show you in a, in a picture, but it basically says should not do things. Who says that in a yeah. guideline anymore? It's yeah. awesome. So, but you need to know what qualifies as a brew. So it's basically a, a little person. So under <laughs> one year of age, it's sudden. It's not, they've been sick for a while, you know, like gradually worse and worse and worse. It's like, whoa, out of nowhere, this happens. It's brief. It's resolved, basically. It's gone. So, and it has one or more of the following. They were blue or pale while it happened. Their respiratory status was weird while it happened. They were floppy or super hypertoned while it happened. Um, or they basically have a change in their baseline responsiveness as a result afterwards. It's, but, and by short, we're talking count to 30 and it's gone. It's not five minutes, 10 minutes. This is short. Those are low risk brews. So a, a low risk brew is something less than one minute. It's the first time it ever happened. Nobody, nobody who knew they needed it <laughs> did CPR. Not just somebody who's like, oh my God, I did CPR. It's somebody who says, oh no, no, there was no pulse. We did CPR. Um, and they have to be over 60 days of age. So that's a low risk brew. You do an H&P and you do nothing else if everything is fine. No testing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. You say, it's wonderful. We don't have to do anything. And you refer them for follow-up. The, if it's not low risk, go ahead and do your workup. But this does peel off a lot of kids yeah. that may have had some sort of event. So here's the kind of algorithmic thing. They're always less than one year of age. You basically do your, you make sure it's a brew. Um, find out those other kind of findings and see if it's a brew. Put them in the right category. Here's how to do it. You can walk yourself through this. My favorite part of this, though, is those last boxes, especially the bottom left. If you've got a low risk brew, you don't get labs. You don't send any monitoring home. You don't get, you, you, you just don't, you don't need to do it. You can't, you don't need to. Um, and you, and the other thing that's sad though is it should, I love this. So your kid's really fine, but we're going to recommend that you get CPR training. <laughs> it's like, well, no, no, no. The kid is usually, and that's fine. Probably all parents should have CPR training. Exactly. I would, I would you, have to, it, you have to contextualize yeah, it that put way. Put it in that box, not in the, yeah. wow, your kid, you got off the hook on this time. Let's see the next time. <laughs> no. So yeah. And then if they're high risk, you're going to go ahead and do more tests to, the, to try to find the reason. Pertussis, by the way, is in there. Just yeah. keep that in mind. Again, we're back to vaccinations. Now, pediatric DKA, I'll tell you, we all hate it. We all hate it. We all hate it, hate it, hate it. Um, because especially they, these kids can come in really sick, especially if they've never been diagnosed before. And our nightmare, it is everyone's nightmare, is that they're going to get cerebral edema. And we need to resuscitate these kids. We need to make sure they're hydrated. We need to do our thing. Yeah. And these kids will get sick and a certain percentage, small but fixed, finite, almost unbudgeable percent will die. And it's just horrible, horrible, horrible. 
So it's particularly the little kids that can't tell you they're thirsty, the little kids that can't tell you they're not feeling good, that parents may not pick on, they need, you know, pick up on their more thirsty because they can't get more their own bottle. They can't tell you anything. Those kids tend to come in sick. They may be altered, frankly yeah. lethargic. They are often really acidotic. These kids can be super sick. The key is do the right thing when it comes to resuscitation. Nate Cooperman, thank God, did a wonderful study that basically said slower fast, and, and he kind of defines what slower fast fluids are. It just doesn't make a difference. Yeah. You know, kids, if they're really sick, they're just really sick. Um, and again, our, our scary thing here is cerebral edema. And that's really often why the, they're lethargic because they're super dry and they may end up with cerebral edema. And that's just sad. Now, inborn errors of metabolism, we referred to a little bit in the beginning of this section. This is not something that most of us are ever going to see because they do a lot of testing pre these days or perinatally. Um, so to find out if kids have these inborn errors, they kind of know ahead of time if it's going to happen. Um, this And it's usually if kids get it, if it's bad in the neonatal period, it's early, early, early. We may see it in infants and toddlers um, and the clinical clue, and it's testable. That's why it's in here. It's testable. It's hardly really ever seen in most of our practices, but they come in really dry they have an anti-gap acidosis, they're altered, and they often have a low blood sugar. If you see that in a kid where they, they've, their, their feeding's been, and I'll tell you, when we see it in, in this sort of infant-toddler group is when they, their feedings change. They end up with higher carb load feedings, or they end up sleeping, and they're different times. They get more bolus feedings rather than kind of intermittent little teeny tiny feedings. These kids, you're, the, the, the answer on, in the ABEM checkbox is check an ammonia. You see this altered kid who looks like they have, you know, has an acidosis, they're hypoglycemic when you do a finger stick, something's just not right here. Get an ammonia level. That's your clue. And you're not, you don't know what to do with this. I mean, I don't know what to do with this. I just yeah. want to call somebody who does. But my job is to recognize that it might be going on. That's right. That's my key here. Electrolyte things that can happen in kids, just to kind of go through the list super quickly here. Hyponatremia, I'll tell you, hyponatremia is not at all uncommon in children. For, think about it. Kids have lots of AGE. They're diarrhea, they're vomiting all the time. And that's like what they do. They just like get these infections all the time. Um, the, the problem is that they get rehydrated with something that doesn't have some salt in it. They will get pure water rehydration and drop their, their sodium. And we see this in our practice population, not infrequently, where they're given dilute tea or something as their only rehydration fluid. And they end up hyponatremic and seizing. So they often GI lose some of it. They replace back just pure water and they end up with basically hyponatremia. Lots of other reasons for it, but that's a common one. Um, just know that they can come in seizing and lethargic and you treat hyponatremia. We'll get into that in a while. Hypernatremia, lethargy and coma. These are usually kids that get super dry before, so they don't get rehydrated like they should and they get super dry. Hypocalcemia causes kids to be kind of twitchy and seizure And this is actually really uncommon in children. Mm. Um, it tends to be tumor related. And same thing with hypercalcemia, again, relatively uncommon to see in children. Um, but that if you see that, they tend to be comatose, irritable, and they, if they can, they tell you they have a headache. Now, if you have an altered kid who has a VP shunt in, you yeah. have to consider the fact that there could be a mechanical problem with their VP shunt. Could it be obstructed? And if that's the case, it's a big deal. And so you want to figure that out right away. Um, and so you remember, you want to find that shunt and you want to find where it is and find that reservoir chamber. And then you want to try to push on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And if you can't push on it, then that might be an obstruction distally. Or if you push on it and it doesn't refill very quickly, it could be a proximal obstruction. Now, depending on where you work, whether or not you have a consultant available, 
available to you. This may be something that you have to deal with. Mm -hmm. This may be something that a consultant is happy to deal with, but in some places you may have to deal with it. And if you do have to tap a shunt, there are, it is within your scope of practice when you work without a consultant that you may need to do this because this is important. Remember that if you're going to check an opening pressure, a kid needs to be in the, in the lateral decubitus per, per, uh, position. The reservoir should be up, obviously. You're going to put the thing in. You're going to check the pressure. You can tap the shunt. You don't want to pull on it. You want to just let it drain. Um, I love this picture. And you see a lovely little yes, spouting right, fountain right. of cerebral spinal yeah. fluid. <laughs> so that's how you do that. But you want to consider that. And here's a little, some little <laughs> tips there for you. Now, tox is oh, an important category yeah. because, again, you have the altered kid. Could it be that they got into a medication or a substance that's causing that altered mental status? And so there's a lot of things that kids yeah. can get into. Some of them are really, really big deal at very, very low doses. So these are the things, that just a little reminder here of the wide variety. Could it be something like fentanyl if, you, oh. if they live in the house of a drug user? Could it be something that they got into grandma's medications? Could it be they got into some kind of glycol or a pesticide underneath the counter? So there's a lot of different things that kids get into and they live, you know, as yeah. they explore their world, this is not uncommon. So right. could it be tox? And so open your mind to that and look for the clues. Now, these next few slides walk you through all the different sort of categories of medications. What, you know, what medications. It's a good resource. It's a good resource. Don't have a seizure. I, this exactly. Is the, these are actually really good resources. You don't have to read through all of these, no. but if you do, if you are faced with a PEDS tox case, these might be a good place to go to like, remember, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. What is the treatment for that? What are the, what's the dosing? How long do I watch them for? This is kind of like, what would my tox consult recommend? This is, you know, how you can go through that list. So you've got all the different things. It's a great resource. You've got your TCAs, the salicylates, your opioids. You've got all that kind of stuff here. The anti-malarials, if that happens to be the case, God, God forbid that's the case, but it can well, happen. Well, actually, hydroxychloroquine may be in yeah, people's houses these that's days. That's true. Good point. That's so. true. It's a possibility. So really good resource for you should they give you a pediatric tox case. Hope it helps you. Right. These are really great resources. So so go to these slides if you have a, a – in fact, any tox that works is just yeah. pediatric toxic. That's right. These are the one pill can kill sort of kind of categories. Yeah. So that's our PEDS AMS. Thanks. Okay, that's a wrap. We encourage your comments or questions. You can reach us at support at ccme.org. And please check our library of educational content at ccme.org. Thanks for listening and bye for now.